Hello everyone, I'm Ross May. Welcome to Film Strips, the podcast where each and every week, uh, Dave Babbitt and Andrew Kanegeezer, who is not with us today, he might have been crushed under some rubble, I don't know. Uh, Dave and Andrew, uh, they talk about movies and... The gag is that each and every week, the movie that under discussion must line up with the movie that they discuss on the previous week. It's kind of like a big game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, except that it's not always Kevin Bacon, and the game never, ever ends. That's Film Strips. Yep, absolutely, and I am here with Ross May, the host of Reitman for the Job, a podcast in which each and every episode, Ross takes a look at uh, the films of Ivan Reitman, diving all throughout his filmography, as well as some uh, delightful side tangents into the history of Columbia Pictures, uh, the Men in Black series and its relationship to the Men in Bl- or to the uh, Ghostbusters franchise, and other things uh, such as episodes of the real Ghostbusters around particular holiday-themed uh, events. So, uh, certainly highly worth recommending here. <laughs> Yes. Hi, Dave. Merry Christmas. Hello. Happy holidays. To you as well. And well, hello to everybody out there in Radioland for uh, joining us here for, uh, I'm guessing it's becoming the semi or the annual tradition of uh, both these podcasts to uh, sort of cross over in a multiverse style event that seems to be popular with the kids these days. Um so, yep, yeah, last, so yeah, last year, everyone go back and listen to it. Listen to all our podcasts. Do it. What else are you going to do these holidays? Uh, last year, uh, you and I, we watched all the Zatoichi movies, mostly from Dae Studios. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, yep. for 2021, we're even, we're even doing the connecting bit for 2021. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, we are following uh, composer Akira Fukube uh, from uh, many, many of the Zatoichi movies over to probably what I think we could safely say is his most iconic piece of music. Uh, it's the one within... that keeps on coming back in movies today, yes. Uh, he yeah. also composed the original Godzilla and most famously the Godzilla March over for Toho. Yep, exactly. So if you've basically listened to any, watched any Godzilla film, Minus that thing in 1998 that was released by uh, Columbia, or well, I think it was TriStar actually. Uh, that, that's way, close enough. Sony that brand. was that was yeah. <laughs> uh, TriStar and Columbia are under the same roof, so that is one of my connections. If for me, if I need to connect Ivan Reitman to Godzilla, it's through Columbia Pictures. Easy enough, indeed. Yeah, exactly. And, so yeah, so yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we're tripping over each other. Yeah, so all this year, um, what was it, in 2019, a very nice set from Criterion, uh, Godzilla, all the Showa movies. So these are the movies from 1954 until 1975? Yeah, Yeah, 1975, yeah. Yeah, and so they had a nice handsome set of all of those discs. So you and I thought, like, well, we need another. (laughs) And for for also a running theme, it's always Japanese movies. But every other weekend, we watched all the Showa Godzilla movies. And this was a lot of fun, Dave. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. And yeah, and we've padded out with a few additional films uh, this time as well, much like we did with the Zanoichi ones. Although that one was a bit more understandable, given that most of those films were just what happened afterwards. Most of it terrible. Um, Yeah. Yeah. In this case, uh, much more quality and some more weird tangents as well. But we'll get there. Yes. Um, Dave. Should yes. we do what you do best, and I'll pretend to be Andrew, and let you head on over to 
A Rundown. The Showa era of Godzilla refers to the first 15 Godzilla films Toho Studios produced between 1954 and 1975, starting with the original Gojira and ending with the terror of Mechagodzilla. This era of the long-running Kaiju franchise sees the series in a period of experimentation, with the films shifting from the somber tone and themes of the original film to the increasingly kid-focused monster romps which defined the series in the 1960s and 70s. The films, most of which were directed by either Ashiro Honda or Jun Fukuda, were consistently profitable, though not always critically well-received, though their box office success increasingly diminished over time until the franchise was put on hold in 1975. The franchise was revived in 1984 with the return of Godzilla, which began the Hensei era of the franchise. Coming up next, a documentary exploring Alejandro Hodorowski's proposed, but never completed, 1980s film adaptation of the Super Sentai franchise. I like the TV gags you do at the end, yeah. Sometimes you have, sometimes I have to think about, like, I have to research what is the gag that you're talking about, some <laughs> actor connecting to some movie that does not exist. If it's Doctor yeah. Who, I can usually figure it out. If it's something else, sometimes it takes me a while. The more esoteric I can make it and the more obscure, the happier I am. Uh, I only do these for the audience of one, and it's me, folks. Um... I am selfish in this way, but um, uh, that's not what we're here to be in this instance, though, is it, Ross? I think we should always be selfish. That, that, yeah, why why that. not? <laughs> no, um, yeah. uh, we'll talk about Godzilla. Um, before, a lot of uh, Western fans are more aware of, you know, um, history and World War II history and things we can get into in a moment, but... In uh, the creation of Godzilla, the original movie in 1954, there's a fact that I find is very pertinent that is often overlooked, That just sort of the most basic kind of movie-making fact. Okay, everyone, think of King Kong. That is 1933. Um, it was re-released to theaters worldwide in 1952, including Japan. It came back, which is kind of funny. The, the difference between back in the 50s versus today, because today they would wait until, like, the 20th anniversary. They're like, whatever, it's been 19 years, we don't care. That They re-released re King Kong, and it was a success in a lot of uh, places all over the world. So it was nearly a 20-year-old movie with, you know, older special effects, King Kong was one of the top five biggest hits in Japanese theaters in 1952. Yeah, and that's, yeah. It. I mean, knowing that it's that successful in Japan at that point in time is very surprising there. Uh, although I'm less certain, was it even released originally in Japan in 1933? Uh, I, I did my research on that, and yes, it was. I um Okay. I forget if it was 1933 or like... The, the year Probably after, 34, or, or the year after, yeah, yeah, but no, it was, it was, uh, King Kong was released, uh, pre, pre-war back in the day then, and in fact, um, there was also, there's even a Japanese King Kong, they got sort of, this will be a uh, running theme this episode with, there's the US cut, there's a Japanese cut of this film, um, there was the Japanese, uh, translation of King Kong, which was just a dub, but also, they also did a short version a more comedic version that used all the special effects um shots and then they had a couple of japanese comedians like running away from king kong and stuff so there it, there actually is on top of being just the king kong dub in japanese that came out in the 30s at the same year like i don't know why like if it was a short that was shown a few months later if it was in the theaters at the exact same time there was just a couple of comedians who were like oh no it's king kong and then they were telling jokes and stuff around that movie which is kind of interesting sort of 
things getting cut up this this becomes a theme with big monster movies yeah absolutely uh, and one that's proudly held on to today through the super sentai series and it's north american cousin the power rangers yeah. um but we're getting ahead of ourselves there um yeah moving on with just some basic facts of godzilla i think a lot of uh, people are sort of aware of the basic facts today. It's like, I'm sure like, you know, in the seventies, people are just thinking like, Oh, Godzilla, it's just a dumb movie monster. And if you look back at that original movie is like, no, no, there's something very um, significant. I, I would say important going on with Godzilla. Obviously there was world war two. There were the nuclear bombs. There was the firebombing of Tokyo. Also in, this is in 1954. There was the Lucky Dragon number five boat. What happened? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So everyone points to this today. It, if you are someone who is not aware of this incident, um, a fishing boat relatively close to the Bikini Atoll, where yes, the bikini, uh, the bikini gets its name from. The Americans were conducting secret nuclear tests. They did tell everyone, here is the radius. You have to stay out of this area. The boat, the Lucky Dragon number five, was like double the size out of that area. But they, the Americans set off a nuclear bomb that was twice as powerful as they anticipated. And uh, also just winds just happened to be wrong for um, this fishing boat. And they were all irradiated. And this is this really horrible event that, and so uh, many of them got sick immediately. Uh, many of them uh, suffered from cancer. Some of them, some of the fishermen, you know, like they they did live um, to older ages, but this was an event that really stuck out to the uh, to the Japanese people. That like, hey, Americans, doing this again. That that keeping up with uh, nuclear tests after you've already bombed us. And now like, it's like, you just don't care about our public, which really feeds it. If you take again. So if you want to make a big monster movie, you've got King Kong. You've also got you and I, we watched uh, just recently uh, the beast from 20,000 fathoms. Yeah. And I don't want which, uh, Yeah. I don't yeah. want to spend too, too much time on that, but it's, it's an interesting movie just for the special effects. Um, but in broad terms, it is a similar movie to Godzilla, right? Well, it's a very similar uh, film to Godzilla, but with a very uh, pro-nuclear, pro-American militaristic yeah. streak. Uh, uh, and, and that's the, the thing. Like, Ray Harryhausen, his films are legendary for their special effects work, and this film is no different. His stop-motion work is phenomenal. Uh, as with most of his films, though, the scripts were rarely in his favor, and... This one is probably one of the worst written by far and certainly is not helped by the really flat direction of it. But yeah, from yeah. a political standpoint, it is very superficial and very, well, you know how we're going to solve, I mean, it really is, there's that great Simpsons episode where Homer delivers the line, alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Mm. That is basically the thesis, except replace alcohol with nuclear energy and there you have beast of 20,000 fathoms. We, if we can use nuclear energy to solve our problem or to create one, we could use it to solve it because 
sure, nobody learns a lesson from anything. Um, but yeah, there's a reason we don't remember that one too, too fondly, uh, in the years since it came out. But, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that film was released in Japan, uh, in 1953 as well. Well, I'll, or... I'll tell you, I'll tell you about that one. So just really briefly, like I did, I was looking at all the dates. Yeah. What I think everyone's pretty sure now is, okay, so King Kong came back 1952, Toho execs go, okay, big monsters, let's let's go for this. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, what I think happened was um, Toho, they must have gotten a print of it and saw, in broad terms, hey, a nuclear test um, unleashes a big sort of dinosaur, it's just a lizard, a big sort of dinosaur back onto the world, okay, and we'll copy a few scenes um, including diving under the ocean and some stuff. Um, no, it uh, uh, it did not come out before Godzilla. The so okay. the Japanese public. So uh, Godzilla came out in um, November of '54. Whichever company, maybe it was. I should have checked this too. Maybe it was Toho releasing it over there. But um, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms was held off until December, like the next month. So okay. it's sort of like unless you really like the stop motion effects, it's kind of this jankier foreign version of like, here's this other kind of Godzilla. Like that's yeah. And and that's kind of the way that the Japanese public probably viewed it. Even though beast from 20,000 fathoms, like sort of informed Godzilla, the script of like, okay, nuclear bombs, this is what we're going to do. And yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, but yeah, it's, I think, very telling, though, when you're looking at them. I mean, Beast of 20,000 Fathoms, Ray Harryhausen is the reason to see that movie. That's the only reason to see that movie. I when told you, you the, the guy at the end there with a gun, that, what, what, just one guy, yes. got, one guy with a rifle stops the monster, kind of. Uh, uh, it's Lee Van Cleef, which, hey, yes. if anyone is going to shoot a giant monster and kill it, like, you can, like, if it's going to be Lee Van Cleef, it's like, well... He's probably the best one to do it. <laughs> yes, and th- that is true. So you you do get at least one good actor there. He doesn't get to do much except no. you know probably the most awesome thing in that movie. No, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's a cast mostly filled with you know the studio stock players, the people who were maybe they were experimenting to see well maybe they can jump up to the A list, and very noticeably, no, none of them did. Uh, and it's certainly its director was nobody of any particular import uh, as well. They really did not do much. That's when Toho comes to Godzilla, though. That's not quite the approach they take to putting that this particular film together, uh, because in this case they end up bringing on a not insignificant filmmaker uh, uh, in this instance to jump on, and that is one Ashiro Honda uh, in this instance. And I think his career is probably skewed a little bit by what would happen after Godzilla in terms of how we think about it here. Um, but this was a contemporary of Akira Kurosawa, and both of them were extremely close uh, during their lives yeah. as well, with even uh, Honda going on to work with uh, Kurosawa on his uh, 80s and early 90s films as a consultant, and maybe even hypothetically directing a segment of one of Kurosawa's last movies, Dreams, depending upon what uh, one believes about the behind-the-scenes production of that movie uh, there. Yeah, so Ishiro Honda, and from all accounts, from on the one hand, he kind of, you know, he was invested in Godzilla. He had opinions on these monster movies that he ended up making. But yeah, you're absolutely right that this was a smash hit, and it was a smash hit abroad. And so Toho kept on plugging him into, do another science fiction movie, do another science fiction movie. And he 
he did by all accounts he did sort of resent that after a while yeah so it's you know good and bad that that he got to he did some memorable movies but he was kind of like i don't always want to do sci-fi it's too bad that they didn't let him do other stuff yeah yeah well exactly but i mean the way he approaches that film i mean for anybody for those who maybe haven't seen it although if you're listening to this, odds are you probably, I think we can safely say, uh, probably seen Gojiro, or at least the Americanized version that was released in 1956 uh, with Raymond Burr inserts uh, in that case, which is admittedly how I originally saw this film for years. I didn't get to see the uh, go, the original cut of it until I was in my 20s there. What about you, Ross? Did you... Uh, what was your experience? You with know this what? I think you have more experience over your life with um, Godzilla movies than I do because I saw a lot of these. I think it was on um, the Space Channel. Yeah, it was on the Space Channel in Canada. That's we we don't have sci-fi. Everyone that we we had we have space. Um, one I and I think it was actually a, a de- December time that so it was good holiday fair in December they got as many of the Godzilla movies that they could have the rights to and showed a lot of them. And it was probably the American, the Raymond Burr version that I probably saw of the original movie there. Yeah. And I I saw some of the others and then enjoyed them and didn't get to see everything and with full context until this Criterion set came out. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was, like, I admit, like, I was kind of hunting a lot of the stuff down when I was younger, or at least what was accessible, which in almost every case was the American versions of these films. It was nigh impossible growing up uh, to get the uh, original Japanese cuts and uh, uh, subtitled versions of those original 15 films of the Showa era, unfortunately, there. A uh, little more luck with things like the, the 90s movies, but... Uh, Again, that was a little, I mean, money would only go stretch so far when you're a kid and you have your allowance uh, and you're uh, making trips to major city centers to track this kind of thing down. Um, oh, absolutely. But... Yeah, for anyone out there uh, um, talking, speaking of the original movie, I think you and I can both agree like, hey, what's the best Godzilla movie? Yeah, it, it, it's Gojira uh, by far. Like, this isn't even a debate necessarily. Which, is it's fun, just, uh, it's like... which I find fun because... Um, when you talk about, say, um, Star Trek movies, when you talk about a Star Wars movie, um, superhero movies, people have these long discussions of like, well, this one is, but you might want to start here. Like, it's uh, Godzilla fandom is pretty cut and dry because straight up is like, hey, what's the, there are um, dozens of Godzilla movies now, which is the best one. And like pretty across the board, everyone will say the Japanese version of the original Godzilla. It is the best one everyone's pretty much in agreement. Well, and yeah, part of it's because it's compared to everything that would come afterwards for the most part with a couple exceptions from uh, later on, once you get out of the Showa era and you get into the later eras, uh, whether it's the Hensai, the Millennium or Shin Godzilla, AKA the second best Godzilla. And, and ever made. I would agree with you there too. Like, like you, and I remember you and Andrew um, covered that way at the start of 2021, I think, but, yeah, yeah the, the, everyone, if you wanted to know, okay, so Godzilla is probably the best movie, and this is not just you and I saying, this is like a general consensus of fans, like, what's the second best one? Shin Godzilla is the second best one, and it's also very scary and serious, and that would be, uh, uh, so long as you are not a kid, that would be my second recommendation, yeah. Well, exactly, and that's the thing about the first movie is, I mean, 
uh, Honda and company really approach this like it's a serious science fiction film in terms of using it as an allegory uh, to talk about basically larger ethical questions, uh, which basically you sort of get that with the second film to a degree, but really by the time you hit the third one, that is all out the window by necessity. Cause there's no way to like, you can't take that first movie and build a franchise around it. It's just not that kind yeah. of work. And they really, it's only once you get to the third film where it's almost feels like, and here's the real pilot for what we consider what I think most people have is the mainstream view of what a Godzilla movie is. Uh, for the most part. It's so much so that I think a lot of people are surprised when they see Gojira for the first time and realize, oh, this is a somber little drama that's basically about three characters. Uh, in Number one, a, a sort of sort of romance tri triangle. I want to talk to you about that in a bit, but yeah. Yeah, and really it comes around the idea of, okay, nuclear, I mean, obviously there's the big metaphor of Godzilla is our stand-in for nuclear disaster, for nuclear bombs. There, It's no mistake when you're watching the film that a lot of how Godzilla's rampage is depicted in that film is deliberately sort of evoking the aftermath of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, as well as other major disasters, yeah. including the uh, firebombing of Tokyo as well. And I mean, that's the, the sort of contemporary imagery that was definitely would have been on the minds of the audiences seeing it in 1954 originally. But the, the sort of central hook of this film, it really begs around, okay, well, what about the next thing? What's going to be the thing that follows through after nuclear war and the central hook, which is this oxygen destroyer. And the real central hook is, dealing with the scientist who's looking on this and saying, okay, I've discovered this. Yes, it might help us in this situation. I am not convinced that using this thing isn't going to be infinitely worse things if we allow it out uh, to stop this you know, gigantic threat in this instance. And it really is that moral quandary of, yeah, just be, what are you going to do if you have something that could literally change the world and, you know, possibly bring about even worse destruction? Like, it really is sort of addressing yeah, that sort of aftermath question that many of the people who worked on the Manhattan Project afterwards were sort of left with which with that idea of, like, what the hell did we unleash yeah. on the world in, in this instance? And, yeah, I mean, it's a film where when you see it, it's structured around, again, it's not a big monster battle. It's not the military marching in and saving the day. It really comes down to two men going underwater to set off a device. And basically, you know, everybody's sort of dealing with the weight of that choice. And one of them ultimately deciding, I'm not coming up from this. Yeah. Uh, not, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's suicide, but suicide for the purposes of, I need to make sure this never happens again. Uh, nobody can misuse what I've done, which again is not, I mean, I, I'm sure for uh, audiences that I've seen it with, it's like, really? That's the ending they went with? Somebody, I mean, choosing to eliminate themselves uh, for the sake of uh, the, the rest of the world? I mean, that's a pretty grim ending uh, for, for, for most movies uh, in this instance, which is why it's such a weird singular beast within this overall franchise. Um, that's a great, pun not that's a, I was there. about to say, that's a great pun to use as, <laughs> a, a, a beast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think you uh, explained that quite wonderfully. Yeah. That, um, there is Godzilla and you, you people are familiar with the imagery of Godzilla. And then meanwhile, here is, uh, 
I call him a mad scientist. Yeah, you know, he's 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 not he is not evil, but it's this uh, scientist, and he has discovered. He calls it the oxygen destroyer, which is we're not too sure what it seems to be chemical, and it is a thing that um, can destroy a lot of life. And it, he's quite confident it could probably destroy Godzilla, but if someone gets my formula, this will be the next. This will be the next nuclear power, isn't that something? Yeah, which which is which is a that is the human drama against the larger drama of Godzilla attacking the cities. Yeah, um, I I put it in our notes that, and this is all fine. This is this is all neat. But like, first off, as as great as um the quandary is, as as great as the moral dilemma is, like the oxygen destroyer also does not make sense, right? Well, it's very much in that 1950s. We don't necessarily fully understand the science here, so we're basically treating it by like magic, but just saying that it's like, no, there is a logic behind this. We just don't eh. all comprehend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you are you are right about that. Like everything is treated seriously enough. You just kind of go with it, and I can talk about more about these things with Godzilla itself in a bit. But yeah, but like the ox oxygen destroyer that also, it it is every time we see it used, it's unleashed underwater, and in the way he describes it, like well. Okay, if it destroys oxygen, and um, if water is oxygen and hydrogen, then it should eliminate the oxygen and just leave you hydrogen. Uh, 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 my my point is that they they got the script mostly good. They could have called it like the bio destroyer or the matter destroyer. Like oh, the oxygen destroyer does not make sense. But oh well, that uh, that that that's what just something that still amuses me decades later. I said the same thing, just moving on to Godzilla the monster itself for a moment. Yeah, that what I also really like is how many how much importance, how many things are crammed into one monster suit. Because um I was saying that uh you first get hints of this, and it's it's spooky enough. You get hints of this from a fishing boat that very much uh calls to mind the Lucky Dragon number five incident. But um to that fishing boat and to the islanders that um those fishermen live on uh, the name Gojira. They're getting that it's sort of their water um, God, uh, this, this, this monster that they know lives out in the ocean. Uh, not, not literally, I, I mean, but also, but like, you know, in the same way that ancient cultures have sea serpents or krakens, or they think of Poseidon or something, you know, just projecting onto the ocean when in reality it was probably just a bad storm and people die out in storm, stormy weather on the ocean. But no, like, what is this horrible monster that lives at the bottom of the ocean? And they call it Gojira. And then we're introduced to uh, a paleontologist. And to him, this is a dinosaur, which also, that's also a thing like this, this, logic does not make sense but whatever it's it it's a dinosaur oh well and on top of everything else also it is brought to life and we could talk about maybe mutated from nuclear bombs and so it is also more than anything else it really is it's nuclear bombs turned into a dragon turned into a monster that is back to attack uh japan which is just this awful thing but i love that that through the movie you you get through this whole arc of it's every like god like we think of Godzilla now as a goofy, I mean, sometimes a goofy monster, a, a rubber suit. But like in that movie, like, no, it's a dragon. It's also a dinosaur. And it's like, I say, the ghost of World War II and evil science. And it's all coming back to just crush and burn Japan, which is which is a hell of a thing to all put into one movie. 
Well, it's very similar, I mean, to the uh, early drafts. Uh, for anybody who's read uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there's two versions of, of the book that technically exist. Uh, the original one, and then the one that was sort of revised uh, based on some uh, public reaction In the original one, Frankenstein marries <laughs> his cousin. Yeah, not quite that extreme, <laughs> but... Uh, that was my main takeaway when I remember that. Okay, I'm, so, I'm sorry, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. In this instance, though, I mean, there, there's sort of this. A lot of us like to remember, again, in terms of the popular consciousness, this idea of Frankenstein as science run amok. Uh, you know, man is messed in God's domain type things. When you look at the way that Mary Shelley sort of sets out the other thing, yeah, there's science there, but a lot of this idea of ancient alchemy is brought up and this idea of sort of old knowledge and old superstition uh, that's brought into it as well. So it's not as clear cut a case of uh, the monster of Frankenstein being just the product of this new scientific age, as it were. There's a little bit of that, not nearly to the same degree uh, going on here in this film where, yeah, yeah, we do have that sort of, uh, again, this idea of the sort of religious or you know specific islander perspective on what this thing is, and you know the film never confirms or denies one way or the other whether this is actually uh, the ocean god or if this is just their interpretation of it, because it ultimately doesn't matter. No, yeah, uh, yeah, but it is an interesting little touchstone just to see that they do have that sort of ambiguity. They do play with a little bit uh, in this one that very quickly gets thrown out the door within uh, two movies. But uh, at this point, yeah, I mean, and that's the the other big thing. This is a film which ends with Godzilla dies. And like, not just, you know, ambiguously, you know, he fades to the bottom of the ocean floor. Because you might think if the oxygen oxygen's destroyed, it's just like, oh, Godzilla can't breathe and it dies of uh, basically, uh, well, Dr- a lack of oxygen. Asphyxiation or something, yeah. But no, yeah. you see it's bones, yeah. Yeah, it's just completely destroyed. It's like, well, we have very clearly made it so that there will not never be a sequel to this movie ever again, uh, or to this movie ever. And, uh, well, you know, audiences turned up for this one. I mean, they made it a huge hit in 54 when it turns out. And uh, to come to, even to the American version, which was released two years later in 56 uh, there, which... And again, I always find this interesting because I was always one of those ones where it's like, yeah, the dub, you know, dubbing or altering it for an American audience, that's always a sign, you know, that you don't, you're not treating the original culture with respect. And credit to the uh, commentators on the Criterion Collection disc, they did put out a perspective that I had never considered before, which is the fact that Toho and company were very excited that the Americans were willing you know, do a dub and actually pay to insert a bit of an actor into this because traditionally, I mean, that the view was, is that, you know, that's how I mean, for them, it's like, yeah, of course you would dub it. Most, you know, many people can't read and we want this to reach as wide an audience uh, as possible. It shows a lot of, you know, sort of trust in the film itself that they would be willing to take that kind of financial uh, investment into it there, which, yeah, I, I have to admit, I, I, again, I still preferred uh, the subtitles, but and I still think the original cut is better. But the, the Raymond Burr version is actually one of those instances where I say the fact that this wasn't a total disaster is amazing. Yeah. Uh, in this instance, uh, it really does hold up on its own. It's just not as good. Uh, Absolutely. As the, yeah. And it, it yeah. it's it's very int- it's interesting to watch it. It's very funny when like you see him as like 
hello, professor. And then suddenly you see the back of just someone's head is like obviously not the same actor that was yeah. in was in the original movie. But ah, that's that's fine. It, it, it's that it's the start of the goofiness, the camp that we associate with most of the 50s, 60s, 70s Godzilla like that. That's kind of the start of it. But it was an interesting attempt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the fact that they also, it was a case where they didn't try to re-edit it into, and we're going to make the American the hero here. It's like, no, the American's just an observer oh, yeah, of all yeah. of this, which is, you know, I love that choice where it's just like, yeah, he happens to be in the area for reasons utterly unrelated to this, sticks around and it's just like, and here I am basically acting as, yeah, the... You know, the person that's like, I'm coming back to America to tell you all what went down, uh, because, you know, you need to know what happened here. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's a, a much smarter and more sophisticated re-edit and uh, adaptation, as it were, than you would necessarily anticipate uh, for this kind of film. Oh, yeah. So I, and for anyone, uh, I think we might have skipped over it. So, yeah, so Godzilla is, or it is all... Listen, it is all Godzilla. Um, they use that, that uh, they have pointed out that as a perfectly acceptable transliteration Godzilla to differentiate. Most people call the original movie Gojira, which is to our ears, that's what it sounds more close like. For the 56 movie, the American movie, if you ever hear the words Godzilla, King of the Monsters, that's where that title comes from. It's the, that is the original US edit with Raymond Burr at, um, doing the Godzilla movie. Yeah. Which they eventually reuse King of the Monsters for one of the more recent legendary pictures. They, 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 they have reused that title since then. But if you're talking about Godzilla, King of the Monsters, what we mean in the 50s is the Raymond Burr American version of the first movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and honestly, you know, if one of those two films is going to have that title, it's going to be the 56 re American re-edit and not that thing uh well I, I make it sound worse than it is the legend the second legendary movie isn't that bad but we can talk about these uh, at the end yeah for sure oh yeah. and really quickly because because i love these little things more reitman connections for me uh james hong is the voice you hear on several of the men in king of the monsters despite yeah. the fact that yeah he is he he is not of japanese descent he's from china uh, uh, chinese but anyway, but like that, and, and they've talked in the sets, like that's kind of, yeah, that that's incorrect, but that's sort of pan-Asian incorrectness that they sort of do. Anyway, but James Hong, so you can hear his voice on that 56 movie. His daughter, April Hong, uh, she voiced, she is one of the junior Ghostbusters. Uh, the, one of the, the girl on the real Ghostbusters cartoon show. Yes. Yeah, that, that's yes. James Hong's daughter. Nice. Yeah, so that yeah, is my it, second uh, Ivan Reitman connection. There you go. But I just love that. I was like, oh, that's that's April Hong doing, that was one of her first roles uh, playing one of the junior Ghostbusters. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, we talked about that briefly before, and I, I really should revisit those Slimer and the Real Ghostbuster episodes. I, it's one of those things where I, I don't think I've honestly seen him since the early 90s at this point in time. I really should give him an, another shot. I will, someday I'll tell people a list of like, okay, these are some of the good uh, Slimer things to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. So, I mean, you know, we have this first movie. It comes out. It's a hit uh, in Japan. The American version is ultimately a hit here. And this ultimately does, though, I mean, because it's a massive hit in Japan in 1954, uh, 
despite the ending clearly indicating there could not be a sequel to this thing. Well, this hasn't stopped Freddy. This hasn't stopped Jason. This hasn't stopped. <laughs> yeah. Who else? What what other monsters are there uh, or killers? Mike, Ma- Michael Myers. Uh, this, this is this has yeah. this has really never stopped Michael Myers. How many times has he died? Three, four times. It shouldn't yeah, stop Godzilla. Yeah. Exactly, and sure enough, Godzilla comes back one year later in Godzilla Raids again from 1955, which is uh, this is probably I would say one of the more overlooked films in the series. Uh, you like by it far? You like it? I mean, and I don't, I don't hate Godzilla Raids again. You like it quite a bit more than I do. So yeah, you tell us why, what you think about Godzilla Raids again. Well, I was thinking more even just in terms of people being aware of this film's existence, because when it came over to North America, it was uh, renamed uh, something else because the producers thought they couldn't use the name Godzilla. So I will tell you they, because like, uh, I will tell you because one one thing I do have is before the Criterion set, um, I have a DVD set. Um, it's put out by Classic Media, so now owned yeah. by Universal, I believe. Um, it's a if you ever track anyone, if you. Well, first off, see the original Godzilla movie. If you like it, yeah, I would recommend either go to your library and get out the Criterion set, or, or you know maybe jump in and buy the set for yourself, like us. It, it, it's a it's a fun set. Um, if you ever tr- run across, there's a DVD set, at, and it's got um, Godzilla looking through a porthole. I don't know why they did it like that, but it's Godzilla, and there's like a ship's porthole, and you see him. That is an interesting set to have because it has a lot of stuff like. Gigantus, the fire monster, which is the yeah. American Godzilla raids again. It is much, much more similar to um, the original Godzilla raids again. There's only just a slightly different opening, and they, I think, they use a theremin in that one. They, they go for it like ooh with the music. It's fun, and then, and then they get confused on which one is supposed to be Gigantus. But yeah, you were right. They decided like, well, Godzilla's not a thing yet, so we'll just call it a different monster and act like people don't know. And then in year- years later, like, whatever, it this doesn't matter anymore. But yeah, so if you ever get an old American set, you might find Gigantus the Fire Monster, which is also this second movie, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, in North America, I think, yeah, it's definitely probably one of the lesser-known ones. But it's a, a film that's kind of overlooked because... It's the point where we start to see where the films are going to go in terms of Godzilla goes up against something else. Now, the way they treat it in this film, it's not like Godzilla is the clear hero who's coming in to save the day like we will eventually see uh, with some of these films. This is much more, we've got two giant monsters now to deal with. But what's interesting is that they try and keep the serious tone of the first film in this case. And while they don't quite have the, uh, they understandably don't try and replicate the sort of romantic drama of the first film, uh, that sort of romantic triangle or the sort of ethical quandary, uh, that was in that first one. They wisely sidestep that. Instead, it basically becomes about these pilots and the sort of, uh, air company, uh, that becomes key to sort of spotting and trying to deal with Godzilla as a threat. And, 
Uh, in many ways, it feels like definitely a reference, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of the historical uh, rationale behind it, uh, to some of the kamikaze pilots of uh, uh, the, okay. uh, World War II there as well, uh, which I understand was a bit of a controversy with uh, Americans, uh, certainly, when it came to this movie as well. But, I mean, it's it's a very somber film, and unlike... It's not nearly as successful as the first one. I mean, it never quite gets the the drama never becomes as involving. But the the focus shifts more to sort of instead of like our scientists and the officials, it's much more about these everyday people and their jobs and there's just sort of, you know, living life in this way uh, there and how they sort of think about life there. And there's something sort of nicely, quietly meditative that I enjoy about this one uh, overall there. Uh, having said that, though, I admit this is probably a much drier film than many people will be expecting uh, when they come into this one here. Yeah. Uh, sorry. No, I, no, I'm inter I'm interrupting you. No, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, for me... Um it's a bit less well thought out, uh, definitely less well edited because they'll have an aerial fight sort of with Godzilla, go back, talk about the problem. Okay. We've got a new plan. Go back to flying at Godzilla again. Like they just stop the action and then, and then restart it again. It's, it's, it's kind of awkward that way. Yeah. It's, it, it's got, it's sort of middle of the road for me. It, it, it's, it's an okay film, but it's just, it doesn't have the fantastic ideas that I think that the first one uh, has. What I do sort of like about this one, this is my um, big contention. My big theory about Godzilla raids again is that Toho totally just accidentally stumbled on the big monster fight. They were not thinking, okay, uh, Batman movie rules. First movie, it's against the Joker. Second movie, it's against multiple villains. Or like, no, no, they're 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 not thinking of 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 uh, a formula like that. What it is is, well, we did Godzilla once. What can eat up more time? Well, what if we had a second monster? Which is, hey, that that's a simple but you know brilliant enough idea. Let's have a second monster. This one is called Angerus, which is a corruption of ankylosaurus right it's vaguely an ankylosaurus and so they call it angerus instead and i think what this one is it's just like instead of godzilla not caring that it's destroying a city and killing people it is two monsters that they're like a tornado going at it and like they just do not care about their surroundings and I know that's just a small distinction, but that's a neat distinction. And then Angerus, Godzilla kills Angerus like with a half hour of the movie left to go. Is like, no, the problem is yeah. the problem is not solved. There's a reason why this is called Godzilla Raids again, and they don't call it Godzilla versus Angerus. This other guy you don't care about as much. But like, no, that that was an interesting idea, I think. And then they realized they're they're going they're going to go forward. It's like, oh, that's that's the money. That's the ticket. Is that we want to have Godzilla our hero, and these are now wrestling matches. They're going to go up against a new monster, and who wins that might actually matter. Here it's like, no, no, it's still the horror of this is a bomb. This is a tornado made manifest in a monster. And like, they just do not care that they will crush your business and then stomp on you. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, is uh, I, I'm going to take this opportunity to make correct a statement I made back in that Shin Godzilla episode of film strips I made, where I referred to the third film, Godzilla versus King Kong is being the one that introduced the giant monster fight. And that's mostly because I had completely forgotten that raids again, technically has it because 
it isn't that important to yeah, this movie. Yeah. It's, yeah. And that's the, the we thing. We all like, forgive no, you, Dave. It's, you are absolved of everything. It's okay. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I mean, and I think to, to speak to some of your po- points here, I, I do agree that, that, yeah, certainly this is a lesser film in many ways. The film uh, in this instance is directed by, uh, and I'm hoping I'm not going to botch the uh, pronunciation here, Matayoshi Oda uh, in this instance. Well, I don't who... think he. I don't think he comes back to the series after this, does he? No, this is the one and only one he did. My understanding is that they did want a Shiro Honda back for this one, but was he was already on another assignment, uh, and they wanted to get this one ramped up as quickly as they could. And it's very clear he's not as strong a director. But with also credit to this film, I mean, one of the things that's very interesting is that they decide to shift the action from. Uh, because we see basically Tokyo getting devastated in the first film. Uh, Osaka becomes the focus of this film here. And again, yeah, even the fact that we're dealing with basic, like the pilots in this instance are all ex-soldiers from the war uh, in mm. this instance. And they've all, they are acting as, you know, basically spotting for fish in this instance. So they can sort of guide, it's like, oh, we see a school of fish. You can uh, guide your boats for fishing over this way and it, again that's such a different milieu than what we saw with the first movie that i appreciate that shake up uh there where it is you know it's not about you know being with the officials it's not about being with the scientists it's not about being with those kinds of problem solvers at the end of the day which big i mean which a brings a begs us uh two questions first of all how did godzilla come back in this instance well it's just another giant monster who apparently underwent the exact same incident that gave us Godzilla. Maybe it's it's uh, the previous Godzilla's child. Who's to say? They never really say. It's just, yeah, he's there. Yeah, so, uh, uh, so that is my question to you. So what is your theory? Who is this second Godzilla? And, and, and also this, we I'll say second Godzilla. And is this the Godzilla that we stick with for all the movies going forward? Or does it matter? What do you th- th- what do you think? I, I think in the grand scheme of things, as far as they were concerned, it wasn't going to matter because it yep. really, what you know, as a kid watching these films, it never really occurred to me to even think about. It. Even though I had seen the first one, I know what had happened. I always thought of it as the same character. Um, I I tend to take the sort of retroactive because the idea of Godzilla having children is something that does come up uh, again and again throughout there. I see no reason why it can't be just sort of like another, you know, younger child or uh, of the preceding Godzilla. We just, the egg hatched, it born, it's grown up now and it's ticked off um, in this instance. And to me, I, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I, I don't see any reason not to treat it as if it's the same beast. Mm, yeah. uh, if only because there's not really anything to be gained by saying it's a different one other than, you can maybe explain why Godzilla behaves differently later on, but that still won't explain things like why he can suddenly dance and other things, as we will discover. Uh, well, they as never the gave Godzilla a chance to, to dance before. They <laughs> fair, were all fair. shooting at Godzilla. They never said, hey, maybe it just wants to dance. Uh, um, that, that this is, very, is true. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're absolutely right that they weren't thinking about it and that in the grand scheme of things, it does not matter. Um, my Marvel no prize would have been that um, this is God, the first Godzilla's mate. And I don't know what gender one is or the other. Um, if it, it might just be, it might just be um, the, 
translations to English that I see, but they usually refer to this other Godzilla going forward in the series as a male, but who knows? Plus also, uh, I'll, I'll let you in on a tip that, um, uh, Japanese like uh Chinese uh does not always define um male and female in like every sentence like they don't use he yeah. or she like in all the time consistently so so when they say in the English like he it was like well it, it's actually gender neutral is what they're probably saying but anyway but my theory has been is that this is Godzilla's mate and then when we get a few movies later, if Godzilla has a child, uh, has an egg, that this would be their, that would be their child, which, uh, oh, uh, we're jumping ahead now. I'm jumping ahead now. But that baby Godzilla, Manila, yeah. in more recent years, like, okay, in that movie, they totally just like, yeah, that's Godzilla's child, right? We're being goofy. Yeah. This is Godzilla's child. Since then, Toho, uh, I thought it was fans at first, but to- it comes from t- down from on high. Toho says, no, Godzilla just adopted that baby Godzilla. <laughs> They're... <laughs> They are adamant. That's the company line is like the baby Godzilla or AKA Manila is not Godzilla's biological child. That is another monster that Showa Godzilla just adopted, which I love. And they must've, they must've done that like since like the 21st century to, to make that clear to old fans. But I find that so funny and pointless and petty (laughs) like no no that was too stupid we don't want that wasn't literally its child that was just some kid that it picked up this feels like you know back in the 90s when there was that you know group that was you know saying no they need to bring hal jordan back as the green lantern and they like literally organized campaigns and bought advertising in books where it's like no restore the the green lantern core get rid of this kyle rayner guy it's just people like care about i just imagine <laughs> i'm sorry people care about important things you know these are all very important well, <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Yeah. I'm just like imagining a group of like 20 people who were just bombarding Toho with emails. It's like, fine, look, we're going to make the distinction here. Okay. Are you happy? Um, yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so, I mean, to, to, to this film, it comes out in 55 and it's a success as well. Uh, in this instance, I don't see, I wasn't able to find any hard box office numbers or anything as it relates to this one. Uh, there, I think it's been less well documented overall, at least as far as information that's been translated into English. Um, but it's successful enough that Toho is willing to say, yeah, we're, we're going to do another one in this instance. Uh, but not surprisingly enough, it's a few years before they get around to this. And by a few years, I mean seven. Well, um, this kind of makes sense. I mean, if we look at just Godzilla, it seems like a big jump in years and all that, but they're chugging away. I think what it really more a case is they don't know how much of the star Godzilla is going to be because they're doing things like, uh, uh, Hey, I watched and everyone out there, you might not want to sleep on Mothra, the original Mothra. It's also very good. Um, it's by Ishiro Honda again. It's the, the focus was, Hey, let's do one of these giant monster movies, but let's make it even more kid friendlier, which is probably setting the stage for things to come. But like Mothra is, it d- does wreck some stuff, but is uh, not about to set fire to buildings, is not about to crush people. And so Mothra comes out. There's a bunch of others. I forget which ones come out like this time, like Atragon. Like, there's a whole bunch of Mysterians. There's a whole bunch of sci-fi Toho movies that we have not seen yet. Yeah. Yeah. And Rodan came out in 56. That's as the other well. one. Yeah. 
yeah, so uh, notably Rodan never quite caught on in the same way. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely that effort by Toho to sort of try and develop their own uh, approach. It's like, well, you know, they just want giant monsters. It doesn't really matter if it's the same giant monster at this point. Um, so yeah, it is a while before they return to Godzilla, and when they do, they do, Toho does something interesting, uh, in this instance, because yes, they're finally going to settle on the giant monster fight as the big Dukeru, and again, this is one of those things where I, I had not seen this, I did not see this film growing up, I should note here, that we're about to discuss, which is King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, in this instance. So I never, I always just associated them as two completely separate monsters. It was, wasn't until way later that I realized, oh, they've actually gone up against each other. It was a film where they crossed over, um, which is fascinating looking at my nephew uh, here. For, as far as he's concerned, Godzilla and King Kong have always coexisted. Like, they're all part of the which same is, universe. Which is, which, what are you when, talking oh, about? Oh, absolutely. Which, and yeah, and which, looking back at how much King Kong inspired even the original Godzilla and how much um, they are intertwined, even though they are owned by separate companies, that your 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 nephew has the proper um, view on things, I think, because, no, King Kong and Godzilla, they have been influencing each other and they belong together in each other's histories. Yeah, so this is King Kong versus Godzilla and finally Toho, they've got the... I also know the reason why you and I did not see this growing up. It's because uh, that King Kong, he cost money. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you had to, yeah. They had to pay Universal to use it. This is why this becomes a special thing, and this is why also uh, we did not see this movie for years and years. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it really was very obscure for a long time, but it's it's more available now, not just in the Criterion set. Uh, even Universal has released the Americanized version, which we'll get to, yeah. uh, <laughs> on disc. So, uh, if you want to see it, you do have options uh, to be able to do it. But yeah, this... This film is really where, if you want to talk about what becomes the defined version of what a Godzilla movie is for the general public at large, this is ground zero, folks, uh, for what you need to see. Because it really is a case of, yeah, this is the giant monster fight. And not only is it the giant monster fight, what's interesting uh, about it is they're still figuring things out as far as what they're going to do with Godzilla because this is still a film which treats him like the bad guy in this instance. Like, he is still squarely the threat of this movie. And interestingly enough, it pins King Kong, this American creation that they've licensed to use here, as the hero of this movie, which I find interesting. And I, I have to imagine if only it's because there some, feels something more human about King Kong despite being that a might be giant it, yeah. monster. Because, yeah, then there just seems to be something to root for or recognizable to root for. At least that's my uh, assumption to go with it. But yeah, this film really is uh, sort of the grand uh, launching point for the Godzilla franchise as we will know it uh, here. Because basically from this point forward, we're going to get sequels almost every year or at the very least every other year for the rest of the decade and into the 1970s uh, in this instance. Now, I, I know you have an interesting take on this one as well, about what exactly this movie is as well, Ross. Oh, well, just kind of the basic thing. I think the first thing to talk about is that um, they definitely looked back at 1933 King Kong. It is about a CEO. Um, he foolishly wants Kong as a spokesperson for his company. And... Um, 
while the 33 original it's like like how foolish is this this guy that that wants him up on stage you know what have you seen the original king kong in recent years yeah, I've, I've, uh, it's probably been about five years since I last watched it, but I have a pretty good memory for it. Yeah, I watched it like last year, and it's very funny that how much The Simpsons treehouse of horror <laughs> how much they got right about that king kong is like like oh yeah what, it's like they're talking to mr burns or like the the presenter is like what are you going to do with king kong well he's gonna stand <laughs> up on stage for three hours and then we'll end with a song like that's kind of what the original king kong is about it's like this is a terrible play you just he's just he's just on this platform look at the size of that platform and, um <laughs> and and but you know, I don't think the original King Kong, it didn't understand how funny that was, like the Simpsons did. But I think Ishiro Honda, he did. And so here is this, the the, the most foolish character in the whole movie is uh, the CEO who wants Kong. He's like, yeah, he can sell my pharmaceuticals and stuff and he'll dance on commercials. This will just be great. And it, it is also, um, this is also a... A, a very comedic movie, a satire on where Japan was heading in the 60s into being this ultra-commercial society mimicking America as well. And like that's that's part of the joke here and how awful it is. Like You should not have monsters fighting in Japan, but you're an hour into the movie and the CEO, there are moments where he holds a sign. He's got, um, he's got, uh, an umbrella of his company and he's all like, like, Hey, it's my company. We're sponsoring Kong's tour across Japan. It's like, you're, he's killing people. Like, this is awful. But yes, so it is on one hand that that is the neat angle I find about this. This is really a satire on where Japan is heading in the sixties. What it also is, is I find very much, Hey, you noticed it. It's, it's the original King Kong plot in general you've got the tribes people on a small island who are all uh by the way they're all uh, in uh, brown face all these japanese yeah. actors yeah it's, it's it's not good but that that that's what they're doing um in both the original movie and in this gas bombs factor heavily into both of the plots that we're going to gas uh, up uh, uh, King Kong. And in fact, it becomes a bigger point in this movie because the how you drug or gas up uh, King Kong is made from fruit on his island. Um, there's one uh, something that I think a lot of people might not even notice. There's a moment where King Kong scoops up a woman and he's got her held captive. Like, they are mimicking what happens in the original movie, but... That's not the finale because because he's got to he's got to let go of the lady so he can later fight Godzilla again. So you might not even notice that they're they're copying a lot of the beats from the thirty three original, but like that is what in large what it is doing. Yeah. Oh, and uh, the last bit since I mentioned the ladies, this this is the fact for all the James Bond fans out there, which that means James Rivnak and Eric Jones, the leading ladies in this movie. They are Mihama and Akiko Wakabayashi. They are the also they are the love interests in You Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie. Then they did that five years later. So if you want to see those same two actresses, um, they are both in King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah, and yeah, it's such a. I didn't realize it was them honestly at first. There, so thank you for pointing that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, this film. I think partly why it's easy to overlook. Uh, the similarities to the original King Kong, though, is that when this film goes bonkers, it goes bonkers. Because, you know, like, we get things such as the fact that, yes, uh, 
there's a, a plot point which I love, which involves this incredibly strong string, like the strongest steel, but, you know, can't really, mm. over, basically can't be seen by the human eye. And it's strong enough that they end up, once they successfully uh, drug Kong when he's in Japan, because ultimately, yeah, we get to what would be the climax of the film where he starts climbing the towers. This time, they drug him, he falls to the ground, he doesn't die, and they decide, like, wait... If we can get him over to where Godzilla is, they can duke it out and maybe deal with that problem that we have right now. Uh, so th their choice is, will we use the super strong string and basically helium balloons to lift King Kong and fly him over to the battlegrounds to take him on? And on top of which, there's like weird choices because you sit there and think, okay, so Kong versus Godzilla, that's big, but you know. Godzilla seems like the stronger foes. I mean, at the very least, he's got that atomic breath, right? So, Russ, do you remember the exact choice that, of what they do to give King Kong more of a, you know, fighting edge in this movie? Uh, Lightning. That, that'll that work. <laughs> well, and everyone, and, and everyone rightfully makes fun of that. Lightning. Well, uh, if you want to know the real deal behind that, everyone... Um, Originally, they were thinking for a while that they could do a Frankenstein monster movie, again, with Universal. And so they're going to get, hey, we could do a Frankenstein monster movie. And then, like, hey, why not? Like, whatever. Frankenstein, just make the monster grow big. Why not? It can battle monsters that way. You can do it. And so King Kong, they just suddenly say in this movie, like, wow, electricity powers King Kong, which is that that comes out of nowhere. It makes sense when you realize, no, wait a second, that was going to be the Frankenstein monster because, like, in the Boris Karloff movie, he's animated by lightning. It's like, oh, okay, I get yeah. it. So, like, there's this dumb bad logic to it. If when you realize what was happening behind the scenes, like, that's ah, King Kong now, it's fine. That's fine. What, what, for some of you who are listening right now, if you saw the, uh, it was 2021, right? This year, it was, uh, yeah. Godzilla versus Kong, the the rematch movie. Uh, uh, they copy some of these ideas. They do the airlift. They it's not balloons this really? time. Oh yeah, they do the airlift. It this time it's with helicopters. Um, so they okay. they airlift uh, King Kong to where they need him to be. There's a few other things they copy. I, I think too. Well, I think the drugging him again. It's, it comes up in all his movies. The powered by lightning. I don't. Well, maybe he gets. I forget if he gets powered by lightning. Also, he gets a weapon that is probably. Um, like the shell uh, plate of one of Godzilla's um, ancestors or something. So he's got this axe. Yeah. He's got a weapon that's powered by that, that Godzilla keeps on shooting lightning at it. So like that gives like, Oh no, King Kong's got a weapon and like got a little lightning mojo happening. So like you can tell like if you're really into this movie, like, okay, they are copying some ideas, updating some ideas for the rematch movie that happened this year, which is fun. The, the best thing about, uh, Kong, uh, excuse me, it's Godzilla versus Kong, is that they know that it is pretty stupid a lot of the time. Actually, its worst moments are anytime they, they go, oh, we're going to get serious again. Like, no, no, don't get serious again. Get to how stupid this is. That That is yeah. the fun part. That is the strength of the rematch movie as well. But yeah. Yeah, I really need to sit down and watch. Like, I, I, I own a copy of it, but then I gave it to my nephew to watch with his... Parents, I haven't received it back yet. Uh, I will re recover this movie and watch it soon. Folks. You are a good uncle. Uh, yeah. I try to be. But yeah, the, the big thing with this one here, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, before we move on from this one, because uh, here, I do have to say, 
there is technically Toho wasn't done with King Kong with this in this instance here because they go on and they make I guess you would call it a spin-off called King Kong Escapes shortly thereafter. There might be another universe, one too, yeah. Well, they were they had plans to do another one but they weren't able to. The license ran out and I think it was too expensive to re-up it so i think they've reused the suit and just called it something else at other times um but the reason i mean number one i want to bring up because that fun king kong escape film king kong escapes is fun number one what i love about this one and of course i would have to bring this up is that the villain of that film uh his name is dr who I am not joking. Um, this is coinc purely coincidental. But what I love it is, uh, you know, when you see the actor there, he still almost had, like, the clothing they've put him in here for his sort of, like, mad scientist look is not that dissimilar from what William Hartnell was wearing on the show at the time as well. So it's just, it's like, in the back of my mind, it's like, oh, so this is what, you know, this is what became of the Valiard. Uh, future regenerations down the line comes back and, you know, takes on King Kong. Who knew? Um, so there's Dave's nerd moment for the episode here. It's, Even it's, it's is... great that I know what the Valiard is. I, I know, I actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's not, it's not like Andrew's like, well, Dave, okay, moving on. No, I, I yeah. know this. <laughs> I never, wa I never yeah. watched that, that one though. But anyway, but yeah, if anything else, there's a there's a lot of movies, a lot of just spinoffs and other sci-fi movies that we just never got to see. Uh, the Frank Frankenstein comes up again several times because I think in one of those movies, if it's if it's a spinoff of of um, King Kong Escapes, there's like War of the Gargantuans, yeah. Which what? I think I I see. I've never seen that movie. I want to someday, but uh, it's. A couple of little, uh, uh, well, not little, they become giant, but uh, a couple of monsters are like the clone offspring, horrible offspring of some monster. And I'm a bit confused as, honestly, what you're supposed to understand is that they were probably supposed to be off of the Frankenstein monster, but they don't want to say anything to pay any american movie any any american uh company any money so you're just like oh yeah these these horrible monsters they're supposed to be frankenstein monsters but eh whatever yeah i haven't seen that one either i know that there is i, I think one of them might actually be called frankenstein in it but uh based on what i've seen i don't think because the big thing is universal doesn't own the yeah they don't frankenstein own frankenstein they own they yeah. own the boris karloff you know, Makeup, design yeah. of Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, they, they swipe the name, but yeah, they just, they literally can't use that design uh, whatsoever. Although I would have loved it if they turn around and say like, well, we'll pay Hammer Studios and take their design uh, from it. You know, just make, you know, nobody will know what the hell we're doing in this instance. Um, oh, for but... sure. Oh, last thing, uh, and we'll move to just some of the movies that we like ourselves. But um, a last thing about uh, King Kong versus Godzilla there are again. There are two versions of this movie as well, uh, along <laughs> yeah. with the the big one is yeah is the American and Japanese uh, original of Godzilla that you got Perry Mason. Everyone, you got Raymond Burr. I mean, you got Perry Mason in there with his damned pipe. Like I'm gonna put this pipe in my mouth and talk about what's happening with Godzilla. Also, there is King Kong versus Godzilla. There is the Japanese version, which is fun. It is it is a I would say it's a it's a fun watch. Then there's the American version of this one as well. And um that one, it is the biggest step down, 
I find because <laughs> it it is some uh, Batman 1966 sets, which I enjoy Batman 1966, but they have fights on there. Here, it's a bunch of guys, and they're going to tell you about what's going on, and they're not looking at the action. They're just going to talk about it. Oh, see, see it, th- this is the thing. It's even worse than this because when we let's be clear here. Batman 66 had a budget. Money and talent was spent on those things here. What we're talking about here is the Universal said, well, we've got, you know, $500. We've got a closet in the space over here. If we put a basic desk in there, we can claim that this is, uh, you know, a television studio. Don't care that it doesn't actually look like a television studio at all. And that you even by the 1960s, generally you weren't seeing people with easel boards and uh, uh, placards to show up on the news. You actually had real graphics you could throw up on there for these purposes. Like, it is dirt cheap and it adds nothing to the movie. It slows it down. Oh, it's, it's really uh, miserable, yeah. Um, in any case, uh, the, 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 so that's kind of the heads up to anyone watching all of these. Um the the good version the japanese king kong versus godzilla is on like the extras disc of the criterion set and they stuck yeah. the american version um in the place on like the second disc and so just like if you see if you see some uh news anchors just talking about like well this is what king kong is up to it's like like watch it if you want to but like you go to the last disc to watch the good version of this movie yeah yeah, and I think that ultimately had to have been the compromise they made with Universal to include it, because Universal controls the rights very firmly, is my understanding of it, and they prefer to have the one that they make a profit off of uh, to be featured in this instance. So in order to get the Japanese cut in any form on that thing, because believe me, it is not it's not nearly as cleaned up to the same degree as the rest of the films on yeah. that set either. Yeah. Uh, there, unfortunately. But yeah, so you will... You can't. You will get the American cut, and it's tolerable. I mean, it's certainly if you, uh, you are going to watch it with. Well, yeah, it's not great, but uh, it, it, it's tolerable, uh, which is more than can be said for some of the films that we come afterwards. But we'll get. Uh, I think we're moving into that now. Yeah, I um, think. I think if you want, so uh, Dave, do you want to just and then Godzilla kept on going. Everyone, um, some good and bad movies to watch definitely check out the original movie that's that's definitely the number one thing to do uh dave what are some of the movies in the middle of the series that really interest you okay so there are two for me that are well worth exploring in this instance i love the first one we'll go sequentially here uh all monsters alphabetically yeah let's go by (laughs) size Eh, it's it's doable. Let me get the Godzilla size chart out. We'll see what we've got here. Um, but yeah, I mean, All Monsters Attack from 1969, uh, which is directed by, yes, the returning Oshiro Honda here and is probably one of, like, some people view this as the nadar of the series at this point. Uh, I firmly disagree. It's not a good movie. Don't mistake me here. But it is a fascinating one, and it's a very brisk 69 minutes uh, of time in this instance, because this is hands down the most family-friendly Godzilla movie in this instance, uh, in terms of, like, this is squarely made for children. Uh, So much to the so that we end up with, like, the whole film is about a small boy who is basically being bullied uh, is obsessed with monsters, which, as this film sets it up, I am still not sure, uh, no matter how many times I've watched it, whether 
we're supposed to believe that Godzilla and all the other monsters are real in this universe, or if this is sort of this meta thing where, no, we're following a kid who's a Godzilla fan of the movies. Yeah, it sure sure seems like this is this might be the only god proper godzilla movie that is not where godzilla is not real i think that's what it is yeah it would make the most sense of this because really what the film is is that this kid who's bullied who spends so much time by himself because his father's working all the time so he's on his own often and his only real friend is this toy inventor um yeah uh, yeah that also happens to live in the building uh, there's also a bank robbery and bank robbers who are hiding out. Sure enough, this kid stumbles on them and he or stumbles across them and they end up kidnapping him. The kid gets conked out and then he has this whole hallucinogenic uh, adventure where him in Manila, Godzilla's pa- uh, child uh, in this instance, whether adopted or biological, who can say? It hatches. Other than- well, it hatched from an egg. Uh, maybe in this movie again too, but like in last movie, it hatched from an egg. Son of Godzilla, it hatched from an egg. Like yeah. they ori- no, they originally intended. And yes, it's called Manila, which is like no, it is not the city in Philippines. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they did this. Uh, it's also called Baby Godzilla. This ugly little little gremlin of a Godzilla monster. Yeah, and like in those movies, they intended it to be Godzilla's child originally. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, so basically this kid has this fever dream imagination of meeting Manila, who's getting bullied by other monsters. And number one, Manila can talk in this film. Uh, Like literally this kid's having full on conversations and Manila can grow in size or shrink down to about the size of a human as well for reasons again this makes so much sense when you just accept that it's a dream and this kid is just making all this stuff up in the back of his head because logic be damned here um and it really is about you know we see godzilla's terrible parenting skills of you know no you need to go fight your own battles here manila get over there you breathe that fire uh in this list you have your use your atomic breath here and through this the uh the small boy wakes up you know, realize he has to face his own fears, which includes escaping bank robbers, uh, alerting the police, and then ultimately defeating the bullies by joining the bullies. It is a dubious moral uh, lesson that's learned at the end of this yeah. film, uh, to, to say the least. But the, there is something so absolutely bizarre about this movie that I find it fascinating while watching it because it's just such like it is so clearly a children's movie and so clearly dictates how far of a series has gone from where it began like if you want the summary of where Godzilla hit was at this point in time you know cheap kids movie reused stock footage and just like again bizarre bizarre sequences uh, uh in this film and plot points uh, I know you also have have some interesting thoughts on this one as well. Yeah, Ross. I think you've got everything exactly. Yeah, um, this is a this is a bad movie. Uh, yeah, so for a lot of years, some fans have called it this is the worst one, and I wouldn't quite say that. And yeah, and you 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 just mentioned it that a lot of uh, reused footage. That is definitely the context to understand this in. That um, what I figured out was is that uh, for a lot of years, um, the Godzilla movies, or any movie, would come out, and then in the summers, on summer holidays, uh, for for festival days, 
studios would edit down some of their movies and Godzilla being a popular one and a popular one with kids. So let's take out a lot of these human actors basically is like, ah, we don't need like basically taking away the plot, which is pretty funny, but also it totally makes sense like that often the plot and the human actors are not very interesting. So let's remove a lot of that stuff. So it just becomes like even less than an hour. It just becomes 50 minutes of monsters just throwing boulders at each other and stuff. And we will show it uh, at um, matinee uh, festival runs. And so kids will come and they'll watch a Godzilla movie and then a short cartoon and they'll get to see another movie. Hey, this is a great way to do it. And that is really the proper context to understand all monsters attack because it al almost all the fight scenes are reused footage. Like the last one is original and some of the, yeah, some of the bullying of the monster is, is original monster footage as well. But most of it, it is Godzilla fought, bugs from two movies ago and stuff like that. Oh yeah, Go Godzilla's gonna play volleyball with uh, Ibira, the horror of the deep that was uh, a few movies ago. And so they just made this very cheaply and if you view it in that lens, like, oh, okay, this was supposed to be like the second movie run in a matinee series. This isn't like the worst God's original Godzilla movie. This is more like the highest production of these cheapo only an hour long kids movies that you're supposed to see on the summer. And that it's, and it's not supposed to be treated so much as an original movie. And like, that is the context. Like, oh, okay. This all sort of makes more sense. Now that's why the, the, the recycled footage is a feature. It's not a bad, you know, you know, air quotes, bad part of it. Yeah. So that's that movie. Well, well, yeah. And I think part of it as well as the fact that, I mean, by being so short, you know, you don't necessarily get the chance to be bored, like, which occasionally happens with these lesser films where they still want to string you on as if you th they think you care about the characters, when, trust me, in most cases, you don't. Yeah. Um. So, so there is that, you know, sort of enjoyment of the brevity of this. And what makes it interesting is this comes a year after a film that I know you want to talk about here in 1968. And what would that one happen to be, Russ? Yes, I want to talk about Destroy All Monsters, which is a very good title. All Monsters Attack is also a very good title, but it's so funny that, you know, that doesn't really represent that other movie very well. But here we've got Destroy yeah. All Monsters. Now, uh, this is 1968, and this is a thing that comes up a lot with um, movie people and movie historians. Is like, this was like the Avengers team up of its day of, of you know... Uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I'm like, like it's like the Avengers meeting up, and and I'm gonna say it again too. Like that is also like what this was like. Uh, Destroy all monsters. This is again Ishiro Honda. At the time, they were considering, okay, we are starting to um, lose some revenues. Um, I don't know how how far we can keep doing Godzilla movies. What if this might be the last one? What if we go out with a real bang? And we've done team-ups, obviously, before, and fights before. Godzilla has fought Mothra a couple times. Um, we had King Kong for a bit, uh, Rodan. But this time they say, like, hey, let's just do everybody. Like, this is... It, almost... Godzilla is the star, but almost... This is like saying the Avengers. This is all the monsters, everybody. And everybody is here. You got Mothra, Rodan, Angerus, who's been around for a while. And Yeah, Angerus came back to life just suddenly. And <laughs> usually a friend. It's Angerus becomes the sidekick of of Godzilla which is very funny after like like you you killed me the first time okay um but we've also got a bunch of 
to to and to North Americans, these will look like the also rans. We got a bunch of these weirdos that we had never seen before, like Manda the Serpent and Varen. Um, these were in movies that I have never seen yet. Um, these were in movies like Atragon, the Varan, the whatever movie. Uh, we've never seen them fight Godzilla before, so they are new to us here. And it's sometimes they're just in the posters and they're just in like the background shot. So like some of them don't actually get in on the end fight, which is kind of funny. And that's all it is. It's, it is set in the future for one thing, which is kind of fun. And you've got this team of action sort of astronauts and there's an alien plot and that, and you know, the human drama, it's, 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 it's pretty stupid. It's exciting enough. It's, it's pretty fun. And they're flying around to different locations, trying to stop the aliens, which are mind controlling Godzilla and all the monsters. And, um, there, there's a big reveal at the end of like, who's the big monster is going to be. If you know, Godzilla movies, you know, which monster it's probably going to be. And it's just a, I, I find if you're going to, um, definitely watch Gojira, that's the first movie you should definitely see. If you're saying, hey, I want to see what is like the best of the campy 60s and 70s movies where it's just a big fight. Like I would I would definitely argue Destroy All Monsters is the best one to watch. It's the best one for kids. Yeah, that, that that's my pick. Yeah, I would probably, I think the best of them for me would be Mothra versus Godzilla in this instance. Uh, if only because... I think it has more focus overall, and there's a bit more of a story to engage with there. Uh, plus, uh, overall, at least one that I think it w would engage kids necessarily, but enjoy Destroy All Monsters is fun, and it's got a very Thunderbirds vibe uh, in aspects of it uh, when you're watching it there, certainly. Um, though, let, let's maybe address before... Uh, there is one other film I definitely want to talk about, but let's actually address the, the what you were hinting at there, the big bad of that movie, because... Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say what the worst okay. of these movies is uh, for a second here. And that is Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. I know that this is going to be a relatively controversial statement among uh, Godzilla uh, diehards there. Because, you know, everybody seems to treat Ghidorah as this big, you know, it's like, you know, the big bad, the big monster. And I have found him boring ever since I was a kid. He is not one of my favorites. Uh, by a long shot here, I just, I don't get the appeal. Like, I, I get that the, the, the general concept seems cool on paper. A giant three-headed dragon that, you know, is usually a bit bigger than Godzilla and breathes fire as well. You know, that's a tough foe. And yet it seems every single time he shows up, it is like a dead weight uh, on these movies where it's just like, no... Like I, like, I enjoy Invasion of the Astro Monster, but that's in spite of Ghidorah, King Ghidorah and not because he's actually in the movie. I just, I don't get why he is the one that sort of blew up with fans, because it just seems like such a nothing uh, uh, villain altogether. Yeah, I do. I, I agree with you pretty much entirely. Yeah, I think that Ghidorah has just a great visual. But you're absolutely right. There are two things working against it. One is that it um, its heads have to be a puppet. And it has no arms, so it can't... I mean, not that I, I, I don't like the movies where Godzilla really wrestles with its arms. Those are... They're, they're kind of stupid. But anyway, but they are what they are. But yeah, so first off, it's a problem of mechanics that they can't get that Ghidorah... And the heads are puppets. You can't really get them fighting properly with 
the Godzilla suit. Yeah. And then on top of that, those movies are usually poorly edited. The original Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, which has some cool ideas. There's a possession of a, of a woman who is trying to warn the world of, no, you don't understand that uh, bigger than Godzilla, there is a monster that destroyed another alien planet and Earth is doomed. And I am I am here, Silver Surfer sort of style, to tell all of humanity, like, get ready, like, Ghidorah is here on Earth now and will destroy us all. But on the on the downside, that movie is really poorly edited. Yeah. And the fights, the fight, so the fights become lackluster too. So actually, you know what? Actually, Ghidorah looks best in these movies, sort of when it's on its own. But they go on for too they go on for too long. But when it's just Ghidorah flying around and just shooting lightning, and like this is Godzilla was terrifying too in the first movie. But like this is also weird. Like it has a weird noise and there's lightning and stuff bursting out of the ground. Like yeah, that's that's kind of entertaining. But I'm with you that fans think like oh yeah, Ghidorah is like the best monsters. Like Ghidorah is pretty lackluster in the Showa movies. I find yeah. Yeah, and that's just the thing. It's like, of all the ones, like, I just, I don't find him engaging, which is not what can be said about the other film, the other interesting one I was going to bring up here, and possibly the most uh, unique, I, I think it's safe to say, about the uh, Godzilla films. That's Godzilla vs. Hedera from 1971, which is basically imagine somebody having a an a acid-fueled fever dream of a Godzilla movie that's ostensibly aimed at kids, but also features some way more extreme violence and gore than you would oh, necessarily yeah, I'll tell you, um, in a Godzilla movie. I'll, I'll tell you, yeah, that my son, he watched uh, Godzilla uh, movies with me, and he had uh, a fun time with a lot of them. Hedorah was the one that scared him, because um, there, Hedorah, everyone... Yeah. And it, it, it's an interesting idea because if Godzilla is, or used to be, nuclear power made manifest and you try to make symbolism out of some of these monsters, for Hedorah, it's pollution and toxic, awful, awful stuff that humanity has created made manifest as a monster. And who who's worse? Like, we made Hedorah like that. that so that is a great message. Um, but Hedorah can, like, dissolve people and leave skeletons behind. And so when my son saw that, like, he said, like, no, this is too scary. So, like, Hedorah is the one that he did not like. Well, exactly. I mean, it's a freaky concept, but that even, even, even with the creepiness of the monster, who, by the way, does mess up Godzilla pretty badly in this movie, um, you also get things like, this is very much is part of that sort of late or late 60s, early 70s psychedelia uh, zeitgeist that's going on because, yeah, like we get you know extended musical montages and sequences, including one in a bar where our character starts hallucinating all the dancers with fish heads there before Hitera attacks. And again, I, I would love to know, I, I would suspect that the blob, uh, the American uh, creature feature of the late fifties uh, had probably see, been released in Japan at some point, because it feels like this might have been intended as sort of an homage uh, to that, where we start seeing the sludge coming down the stairs, the entire crowd freaking out, much like the theater crowds in that movie as well. 
But again, you've got all this completely trippy lighting and imagery going on in this film. And that doesn't even take into account the animation sequences of this film. And by animation, I mean, like, it's, we have points where this film just straight up becomes a cartoon in an almost very didactic way of explaining, you know, the environmental messaging of the movie as well. Not that it's all that subtle to begin with uh, throughout the rest of it here. It's... Like, this is the film that everybody points out and says, like, yeah, that's the weird one. And you're, A, you're not wrong, folks. It is the weird one. And that's what I appreciate for it. I'm not showing my nephew this one for quite some time, mind you. Not maybe till he's, uh, uh like, quite a bit older th th than he currently is. But uh, this one, I, I think it's well worth uh, everybody checking out. It was the one and only film directed by... Yushimitsu uh, Bano, uh, which, uh, from what I can tell, this was their only directorial they would, effort. They wouldn't let him but do notably, Godzilla movies again after this. Yeah, they, 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 Toho executives did oh, not yeah, like he, this. Yeah, he gets straight up got fired. But the funny thing is, he has apparently worked as a producer and consultant on the legendary Godzilla movies that have been made over the last decade uh, here in America, which before he passed away in. Uh, I want to say it was 2017, I think he passed away. So, yeah, and he also, for years, was hell-bent on making, like, an IMAX feature film sequel to Hedora as well. Uh, there, uh, which he never quite got the financing for. It's, it's like, I appreciate this. Like, I mean, it, it does not look like any other film in the Godzilla canon that you will see. Like, it is a, its own weird entity uh, onto itself. And I'm not going to say that it all works, but I appreciate the effort uh, <laughs> that went into this one to make it what it is and how distinctive it is uh, there. So what about you? I mean, any thoughts on this one in particular, Ross, or any reactions uh, aside from, uh, but this is definitely way too intense for small children? I think you've got it. Yeah, it's it's. I think you like this one a bit more than I do, but it is definitely interesting. Yeah. And just this year, it's the, what, 50th anniversary of that movie? It's... um. Yeah, I and think, so you so. even shared me the link. I knew it was coming, but they did a fun, Toho did a fun um, short fight between Godzilla and Hedorah again, and it's online. You can just Google around for it, and that's fun. Yeah, that that Toho is starting to celebrate Hedorah a little bit now, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to see the monster get credit, because it certainly is one of the more unique, weird designs, especially when it becomes all of this almost like flying jellyfish uh, late in the movie. And what's noticeable is, is that a lot of the film is built around the humans realizing, okay, we need to assist Godzilla in finding a way to defeat this thing, which involves basically drying the sucker out using an elaborate satellite system. Um, but it also gives us possibly the most ridiculous use of ability that Godzilla has ever displayed in any of these movies, which is using his atomic breath to basically fire himself like a rocket uh, across the, the landscape, which, <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, it's like, yeah, dancing Godzilla was one thing. This, this is a whole nother kettle of fish of just, yep, that's the thing that happens. I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, it's just not something I would have anticipated. Um, so... Yeah, that's that's about as the, the weird as weird as this particular era of Godzilla gets before it pretty much comes to a climax by 1975 with 
I, I would say probably like what arguably is the most famous uh you know villain outside of King Ghidorah. Uh in the sense would you say that's fair, Russ? Yes, I think you're right that um Mecha Godzilla, even today, even um decades past when he's had different enemies and stuff, I think uh Ghidorah and Mecha Godzilla are probably his two biggest rivals now. It should also be King Kong, which only only in uh, this past year, King Kong has really come back. But yeah, so Mechagodzilla is the other big one. Mechagodzilla is around for two movies at right at the end, and it's a fair, it's a good enough idea. Hey, why not just have a robot version of your now hero? And so the very last movie, it's a it's a Shiro Honda again. They <laughs> they they couldn't get rid of him. It's Terror of Mechagodzilla is the very last one. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Oh, this is also, you know, good things, bad things. This is also Ishiro Honda's very last movie he ever, uh, directed solo. He would do a lot of, uh, movies, uh, later, like you said, with Akira Kurosawa, his pal. But so like, this is, this is his, uh, finale in movies and with Godzilla on his own. It's an interesting movie. Uh, they've got, uh, Throughout the whole, something we haven't talked about is throughout the whole series is a lot of the actors keep on coming back and almost always in different roles. So like this guy, and it's fun when sometimes when one guy who's a hero will come back is like, I'm the villain now. And they get to really ham it up. That is very fun. In this one, it's the original uh, mad scientist. Akihiko Hirata is the is the actor and he's back and he's being a bigger mad scientist this time um he is he's he's dressing a bit um with white hair a bit Einstein style mad scientist look and he is mad he is pissed off at humanity in this one and he's having you can tell he's having a lot of fun acting what I like about this one too is also oh yeah there's also um They've been teaming up Godzilla with a lot of monsters now, which was a thing that happened in Destroy All Monsters as well. But like now, like it's always like I've got Anguirus as my sidekick, or I've got uh, everyone points out there's one with the size changing robot Jet Jaguar, uh, which is just a guy in a suit. Yeah. He looks he looks like he should be in Power Rangers against Super Sentai stuff, which is entirely the idea. Super Sentai had become a thing, and Ultraman, and so this was Jet Jaguar. In this movie, it's Titanosaurus. Titanosaurus is one of the more boring Godzilla sidekicks, especially because it is basically just another Godzilla. Titanosaurus has a longer neck and uh, and uh, head, and it's like a more aquatic Godzilla, which is kind of stupid because you remember that Godzilla like can live indefinitely in the water already. But uh, yeah, so teaming up with Titanosaurus towards the end, um, the whole thing is actually is that the mad scientist, he's pissed off at humanity that he said, there's this creature called Titanosaurus living in the oceans. And the whole scientific community goes, you're crazy. Well, like, there's already Godzilla. Why not? <laughs> I, I, I love it. It is very stupid in this movie. The other scientists do not just accept like, yeah, there's a, there could be another Godzilla kind of monster around. We've seen dozens of them now. And you pointed out in it's, uh, they use a series of, of um, photos and they show the other scientists just like wrestling the mad scientist to the ground is like, you're an idiot. <laughs> There's no other monster hiding in the water. What are you uh, just beating up this one poor guy? 
And so, of course, this naturally makes him team up with aliens again. Like there, there, there's been aliens for a while now in these movies, and he's gonna use Titanosaurus oh, yeah. to destroy humanity, and that's what that movie's about. Yep. Yeah, it is. On one hand, it's kind of a perfect way to go out on because this movie is so kind of gloriously ridiculous in terms of its plotting. Like that, yeah, the whole. You know, the, the scientific community basically acting as by mob mentality in terms of how they handle uh, people they disagree with. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's how, you know, what's known for science in this way here. Um, they're, they're the d citizens of Springfield. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not a great movie, but it's a fun enough one to go out there. But you can tell by this point, like, everybody's drained. Uh, making these things like nobody really has any fresh ideas uh, to bring to the table like yeah because this is like about the fifth alien invasion plot line that these films have done by this I point. like the one and I think this is yeah I like the one and I think this is supposed to be the same aliens um, from planet X I think they say but in one of the movies not this one um, the aliens they are secretly apes with ape uh, masks oh yeah and Oh yeah, and they they paint them green, and you know why they did this is because because a movie called Planet of the Apes came out, and so now uh, we've got some Planet of the Ape aliens in the mix. Yeah, I I love it when they just it's pretty blatant when they're just stealing ideas. So yeah, this is <laughs> this is how they're just ending things on, and and yeah, it's kind of more of the same, and it's fine. It it it's a fun. Uh, finale to the 70s movies, yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, and that's the thing, and it's like, I, I don't, I, I completely get why there would basically be about a nine-year gap until they decided to relaunch things with the hentai era uh, there with uh, the return of Godzilla uh, there, which basically just shows it's like, yeah, the uh, 1954 film, that happened, everything else, scrap it. Doesn't exist, doesn't matter, we don't acknowledge that. Uh, in this instance, and it's hard to argue that kind of logic uh, with that because the series, I mean, much like the Roger Moore era of Bond, it, like it had gone so far afield by this point. But again, kind of like that era of Bond, it, it, I think this is the joy of the Godzilla films: is it's such a malleable series in terms of what you can do with tone, what you can do with the, the metaphor of what Godzilla is, if you really want to double down and invest on that, uh, like Hideki Anno did with Shin Godzilla. Uh, very few films have gone ahead and done that, but I mean, you know, there is something always ripe to do with Godzilla in those ways, uh, if you play your cards right. And I mean, I guess for you, Ross, like, because again, I have rose-colored glasses. I, I will straight up admit this for the Godzilla series overall, even the ones I'm not super fond of from this particular era. Um, I have a soft spot because these were the ones that were airing on TV when I was a kid. These were the ones I was able to get my hands on VHS cassette tapes of uh, there with, you know, uh, allowance money and that. I mean... For you, based on what you're saying here, you know, you've had some familiarity with them there. I mean, what is your thoughts on the uh, the Showa era overall? Oh, I've really enjoyed this. You said that you watched a lot of these with uh, your nephew. I watched a lot of these with my son. In um, the first, it was actually the first Godzilla movie. Um, he said, oh no, Godzilla. And then he took some toy ice cream and said, here, I'll give it. I'll give Godzilla this ice cream and then he won't be so mad. 
was so oh that that warmed my heart nice things like that um these movies are great to watch with kids the first one is good and a lot of them yeah it is camp charm if you like 66 batman if you like uh, uh if you like doctor who if you like uh, uh interesting sci-fi or stuff like that's they're fun to watch and sometimes it's a matter of okay i'm trying to figure out how much of a rush job this one movie was, which is sort of like talking about, you know, uh, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, which I said um, is poorly edited. That was a really rushed job, despite the fact that they had a really ambitious idea with this three-headed dragon. And then you and I are saying, like, they, they didn't quite pull that one off, but, like, it's interesting to watch all the time, which actually um, is a nice way to maybe bring close to a close because... Um, I've got this idea that, well, actually, I'm not the first person to have said this. You know, the best fandom in existence is probably Godzilla fans, because if you're uh, if you're into Marvel or DC movies, if you're into Star Wars or something, you're saying like this movie better meet all my expectations. It better be the biggest movie ever. Otherwise, I'm going to be disappointed with Godzilla fans. They are they are used to disappointment. <laughs> we've had we've had these janky sixties and seventies movies. They've had uh, and and uh, we have not really touched on the nineteen ninety eight movie. Yeah, that, uh, th there there's that. So Godzilla fans are used to disappointments, and so when an okay movie comes along, and and that might be a good segue into what you think of the legendary films. You know what, like. Are they perfect films? Oh, absolutely not. Like the, the the best film again is the original movie, and Shin Godzilla is a very um good all around movie too. Like, how's this legendary picture doing? How is this movie from the eighties, nineties, two thousands? Like, well, they did this okay, and this fight was good. I didn't really care for the human bits, but like, good job, and like polite round of applause is like, like oh, they did a very good job. Like, I I hope they improve next time, and that's that's I think. Godzilla fandom is that like you are used to the good and the bad and this is an enjoyable thing to do well absolutely yeah I mean I think the only fans who probably have experienced disappointment more than that is Highlander fans but that's only because everything after 1986 has been nothing but one big long disappointment I bet you're looking forward to the Highlander reboot aren't you I will be there in the audience to see it yes I am now, um, I have I have never seen a, I loved it because you uh, you guys were discussing about Highlander uh, earlier and I've never seen a Highlander movie I know I know the premise and I know about the first one. I've I've never seen this, which is a great way to experience Highlander's like, okay, this movie has nothing to do with the previous movie and they cut the budget by three quarters. It's like, okay. <laughs> like I'm just piecing together I can just imagine what a Highlander movie is, just as maybe people are just imagining what Godzilla movies are from us talking. Yeah, it's they are uh yeah, watch the eighty six film folks and then, you know, be prepared for whatever the hell comes afterwards, because uh, you won't be bored. I can guarantee you that. It won't be good, but, but it, you won't be boring. But yeah, I mean, to, to come to your question about the legendary films, in the sense, like, I, I, I keep referring, like, the first of the legendary films, the 2014 film, I, I, keep call, I called it back then a classic Coke Godzilla movie, and I stand by that thing. It's basically what you would kind of want a Godzilla film to be if it's in the more serious mold. It's Godzilla in hero mode, fighting other monsters. Like, the the problem of the one... Like, I, with the caveat that I still have to see the last one, 
the problem that the pre those two the first two of the legendary Godzilla films have is that they they fall victim to the we're taking this way too seriously in the way that American yes, blockbuster right. s- s- takes itself way too seriously because like even things like you know you, you you know King of the Monsters the the uh, twenty seventeen film uh, Mothra pops up King Ghidorah pops up, like a bunch of the monsters pop up but like they strip back all the fantastical from it as much as they can where it's like yes we have Mothra but we can't have the twin fairies there in this instance there because yeah, that would be a, yeah. a, a, a step too far where it's just like but yeah but why do that I mean that's half the fun you know is the fact that yeah you know Mothra is this kind of wonderfully silly and fantastical concept and that's the struggle it comes down to and they've the Americans still have never fully cracked the what is you know the human drama side of the things and now with fairness to them most of the Toho films have struggled with that themselves but when they've done it spectacularly well, I mean, it is, they do a phenomenal job. We've yet to see the Americans really nail that uh, with their rendition of yeah. Godzilla. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, overly serious. I'm I'm fine with the legendary films. Um, that That's about the extent of it. Uh, uh, yeah. If King Kong shows up, I'll tell you, like the rule of thumb with the legendary films, if it's got King Kong in it, it's yeah. one of the better ones. Th- oh, those yeah. are the more fun of the MonsterVerse movies. Yeah. And I think they're apart, as you say, well, also my general complaint for a lot of movies is they're all, all, no, no, not all of them, but a lot of them are too long. Yeah. But other than that, and a bit too serious, but other than that, they're about what you would expect from American production doing King Kong movies. Yeah, they're okay. Why well, that's... <laughs> Well, and that's exactly. They're, they're part, I mean, partly because the bar was set so low in '98. I mean, anything's good. It's like, well, it's still oh, I've better got a, than that. <laughs> I've got a hot take that I I said on Twitter um, after I watched the '98 Godzilla movie. I think for like basically the first time I've seen like half of it before as a teenager. No, I watched uh, the '98 movie and I said, you know what? Like, it's a bad movie. I like the '98 movie better than the 2014 American movie. <laughs> Which I I have to I still can't wrap my mind around. It's uh, funnier. Time. It's more enjoyable. Uh, uh, with a sp- what cracks me up about the 2014 movie is that there's that American soldier or marine or whatever yeah. everywhere he goes. Oh wait, Godzilla followed me. Oh no. Yeah, it, it, that's the thing, and like that 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 part of it is ridiculous. I just like the thing with the 98 film for me is that it's so. A, it so badly wants to be Jurassic Park and just rip off Jurassic oh, Park. Oh, yes, yes. But it's also just... They've got raptors! They've got Godzilla raptors, and they talk about, oh, Godzilla can reproduce asexually. Yeah. They, they should say, you mean like in Jurassic Park? Yes, like in Jurassic Park! I know. Well, and that's exactly it, but I mean, it's just like... I, it's filled with a cast of characters I, I just generally hate. And again, it's a, one of those things where it's like, I like a lot of the cast members of that film. Uh, they're you like, like all the Simpsons actors, huh? I like the Simpsons actors. They've I, got three Simpsons actors in that. <laughs> well, exactly there. But then they give them like Hank Azaria is stuck playing just like this absolutely obnoxious cameraman throughout the whole film. You've got weird you know, jokes where... It's like they were setting themselves up for the defense of, well, of course, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel don't like this movie. We made fun of them in it. Uh, it's like, 
you know, they didn't like the movie, but it probably that was incidental to it. That was your get out of jail car free car. Roger here. Ebert. Uh, I, I, we, yeah, we better move on to other things. But Roger Ebert at the time had the best comment about that. He's like, oh, man, there's a sis. There's me and Siskel uh, played by actors as like the mayor and his aide in this movie. And we do the thumbs up, thumbs down thing. He said, if you're going to do this for us what you should do is you should have Godzilla step on us. He's like, yes, that, that, that is, he had the best idea. If you're going to make fun of Siskel and Ebert in your movie, you should have the monster crush them. Yeah, exactly. That just, that's the level of non thought that went into the 98 film overall. And, but, but yeah, we'll, 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 there's a whole tangent to go down. If we start going too, too far, but as we said in the Shin Godzilla episode of film strips, uh, great soundtrack. Nobody's going to argue that, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, yeah, the legendary films, they're fine. I'm curious to see what Toho does next because they, they've been talking about, uh, plans for what they want to do with Godzilla going forward. I would love them to keep the sort of, you know, one and done sort of Shin Godzilla in the Millennium series stuff going on, but it sounds like they're going to go back more to a continuity approach, which fine. If if they can make it work, they can make it work. I'll be happy with that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do next. Um, I guess the last thing we better stick to format uh, Dave, yes. do you have hits for Showa Godzilla movies? For the Showa Godzilla movies, well, I, I think the big one we have to give is a Shiro Honda, because if he did not pull off that job on the first one there, uh, he, I mean, th there would be no franchise afterwards. Like, there would be nothing to follow afterwards. And, you know, I, I don't think he always quite, you know, is comfortable with the more kid-friendly approach of the later films. Uh, I would say some of the other directors uh, that would step in after him are uh, particularly Jun Fukuda uh, were definitely more comfortable working in that mode than yes. he was. But, you know, again, Ashiro Honda, he set the bar, he set the template, and, you know, he it's you never got the sense he was phoning his work in, even on the ones he wasn't personally invested in uh, there. So I think he really deserves his credit by far for establishing the series. What about you, Ross? What would be a first hit for the series overall here? I agree with you. Uh, I'm going to give it even more... Um the real hero, even more than E.J. Subaraya, who supervised the early special effects um, until he retired. Um, the absolute real heroes, I think, of these movies are the suit actors. Yeah. Because, and they did some dangerous jobs sometimes. And starting with Haru Nakajima. Now, I know if you're a Godzilla fan, you know, like, there wasn't just one guy in the suit in the first movie and a lot of the times, but he is... He is Haru Nakajima. He is the one who um, comes up most often. He was there until the 70s and did a great job and sometimes emerges out of the water. And like, how do you do that? Like you, there was a chance you might have drowned. There was a chance you might have got blown up by the small explosions and other times. And so I'm just very impressed with all the people in the suits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that was not a demanding physical job by far there, and certainly what was not easy. And, you know, so, so given some of the stories that have come out about their experiences on that and how cut, even just cut up you would come out of those suits in, like, full credit to them. That was a, you know, 
a very difficult job and oftentimes we're probably not the best pay um so, yeah oh the second the second guy that i'm going to include in there i, I was figuring who is who is the second actor yeah the other one and there, there's actually several that i should mention but the other big one is ken pachiro satsuma he is basically the second godzilla he did it in the 80s and 90s he is also he started out on hedora oh which legend yeah. yeah yeah so ken pachiro satsuma he he is the understudy um, at the in the Showa movies, he starts out as some of the bad guys, uh, starting with Hedorah. Then he graduates up to being Godzilla in the 80s and 90s. Um, uh, legend goes that during the production of of Hedora, is that he had some abdominal pain and he had um, appendicitis. And they say this is true that like they had to keep on filming, so they brought a doctor in and cut him open. While he was in the suit, oh my god! Like, like that sounds wrong and like BS to me, but it's quoted often enough. I don't know. So, like, maybe he like like ow, I I've got appendicitis. Well, let's get that appendix out, patch you up. Okay, back to work. Like that sounds horrible. But anyway, so so both of those actors, Haro Nakajima and Kempachiro uh, Satsuma. Yeah, I was going to say, if that story, I mean, on one hand, it sounds like the kind of story that seems too ridiculous to be true. On the other hand, if there's anything I've learned over years of reading about what goes on on film sets there, I also wouldn't put it entirely past studio executives like, to do this. So, like, Jesus. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess the other... Uh, we have to give it to Akira Fukube uh, for his music and for the Godzilla March. Like, there's just no way uh, not to give him uh, a hit in this instance because he is, like, he defines the sound of what it means to hear Godzilla come in. It's as iconic as any of the Imperial March from the Star Wars films, your Batman mm. themes, like, anything like that. This one stands up alongside them incredibly well. There and again, I mean, he was such a very versatile composer for the amount of stuff he cranked out. Because like this is just a small, you know, part of a large, large, much larger body of work uh, that he did, including stuff we talked about last year in terms of the Zatoichi movies as well. Oh yeah. So I mean, you know, for this to be like the the standout iconic theme though that he wrote, I mean, there's a reason for that, and that's because. It's just a phenomenal piece of work uh, there overall. And his scores on the whole have definitely been that for all the ones he worked on uh, personally there. So he definitely gets my second hit for this one. I agree with you. I'm going to jump over to Pitts now. Yeah. Um, and my, my big complaint, I mean, there are several complaints you can say about this movie. Anytime you see Godzilla throwing a rock... <laughs> then you then it's a bad also because i know he's got arms and if actually if you pay attention like you can see no he's got full human arms with everything but like i like in the first movie where if they kind of obscure that fact and like no be it more like a tyrannosaurus rex and yeah he can't really use his arms that's my preference they learned that for shin godzilla they know the little stubby little arms when he's standing up but anyway uh, that wasn't even my pit. That, so there's several complaints to say about these movies, but you know what? I'm really going to say um, the editing sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla raids again for me with, let's have an aerial battle. Stop. Talk about things. Have another aerial battle. Um, Ghidorah, the three-headed monster we talked about. Ghidorah is, th that's an interesting movie just in that um, uh, I learned... The American editing of that, which is very, uh, uh, very slight changes. It's only like 
three minutes different in runtime. They don't include any American actors in the American Ghidorah movie, but they improved the editing in the original, in the American Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. The, the continuity of it being night and daytime and what the actors are talking about, it's messed up in the Japanese original, and the Americans actually for once noticed that and corrected it in doing the doing Ghidorah. So the editing, and I think, and, and I don't blame the editors, they are moving at a lightning speed for some of these, because like you say, they are cranking them out uh, sometimes one a year or even shorter than that. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it just, it doesn't work out in the end. And a couple of those movies got ruined because of it. So I'm going to say poor editing because of uh, time limitations for some of these. Yeah, no, I absolutely would 100% agree with it. That really is the struggle that most, a lot of these films uh, dealt with here. Uh, I'm going to give a bit of a different pit here uh, in this one, because it's not really to the films themselves, but it's actually to the Criterion Collection uh, in this instance here, because that set is amazing. Okay, folks, let me be clear about that. It's great, but there was something I started noticing, and I think it was about disc three or four, when I'm watching the films there, and suddenly, for whatever reason, whenever the edits were happening, like, something was bothering me about it. It's like, I could not put my finger on what it was, because this doesn't happen. I figure it's like, okay, is this just, am I in a weird mood? Is there something going on? Am I having vision problems here? Like, what is it? This is that I would go off and watch something else, and it's like, no, it's perfectly fine. The framing that they chose for like about one and a half discs worth of these movies is just particular enough where if you're looking at the bottom of the screen, it's almost like you can see just like the very, like just uh, like the tip of what the bottom frame would be. So you're almost getting pre-cued to the edit itself uh, when you're seeing it there. And the problem is, is and they, the recent criterion, it was brought up to them as an issue. And they said, it's like, well, we're following, you know, because their whole big deal is about preservation is close to the original ways it was at the time there. The framing, uh, uh, the aspect ratio, they chose to go with that one because that is what's technically accurate. A slight modification in this instance criterion honestly wouldn't have hurt there because it is so distracting while I, I was watching these films there. And it really is like a disc and a half worth of the entire series where that's like. And again, you know, I went back and watched some of those classic media releases just to see it's like, this wasn't in this one as well and I'm just missing it. No, it's not in those ones there. So, I mean, again, that's not really a complaint about the films, but the, it was just such a weird preservation choice. Uh, to... I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that they must have. They they took a film strip, and at the bottom of the screen, usually it was at the bottom, right? Like, yeah. There would be. There would be. They're they're showing everything that the, that the film has, and every mistake. And so, like, there would be um, just blocks of color or something at the bottom of the film. And like, as you say, like technically they are showing everything but it was probably like obscured up on a theater screen. Like, like if they, they, the projectionist could have focused it, yeah. um, removed, you know, that little bit and got it off the screen itself, but it was on the film. And so criterion just left it on the film. And so like, there's this distracting stuff in there. I don't know if you ever to, to put it something com 
com- a comparison that uh, some video game people might know. Have you ever played like Super Mario Brothers three on uh, high def television? Uh, I haven't, but I can only imagine what kind of nightmare that would be. Um... Well, on the left, on the left and the right, because because it was designed for a certain. I mean, even if you select the the correct aspect ratio, if you ever remember playing Mario three, you'd actually know on especially on the far left, it didn't contain all the information that was in the video game, so it would just show like random blocks of blue color that uh, uh, an old CRT TV would usually obscure. Yeah. And so the programmers knew about this, but they're like, well, if you show it on a CRT television, an average viewer 90% of the time won't see this. It's one of those situations. And then you use, um, and then if you show the whole thing by co- by hooking up an old Nintendo up to a high def TV today, and I'm not talking about getting the wrong aspect, aspect ratio. I'm talking about selecting the correct aspect ratio, making Mario look correct, everything again. You can just see this block of wrong information off of the left is like, oh, this is ugly thing that we never saw before. And it's just there for you now on full display in the same way that Criterion here is like, we're showing everything like, yeah, like, I wish you didn't, but okay, I get it. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, and I get where they're coming from because they, they are so, they, they, they are very much sticklers for, well, no, we are going to present it the way it was supposed to be presented. What was the specifications? And, you know, oftentimes they'll bring in the cinematographers to supervise. They'll talk to the directors. Uh, most of the people who worked on these films uh, have passed away uh, at this point in time, so that's a little bit trickier. But, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, you're not doing the films the favor you think you're doing by allowing this criterion. Um, so, uh it's unfortunate. Uh, that's partly why I'm not going to get rid of my DVD editions necessarily, because as great as the cleanups are, that can be a distracting uh, element by far when you're trying to watch these movies. Luckily, it doesn't impact. It's not something that impacts the majority of what's on the set there. Uh, I re- yeah. So you're fine for most of them. It's just be aware that when you get to like, I, I want to say it's disc three or four, when you start to notice it there uh, at that point. If you're like me, it will bug you. Uh, so, yeah. But uh, any other uh, pits for you, Russ? No, that's it. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, every year, uh, I say every year, for two years now, going through Zatoichi, going through Godzilla, our Japanese movie club. I th- I've been having a lot of fun with these watches with you. So thanks very much, Dave. Oh, this same has here. Been really great and happy holidays. And now, but we got to keep on rolling here. What could we do next year? Um, we could do the Gamera films. Um, uh, Arrow did a nice set of them. I... I still haven't really watched any Gamera yet. Um, I need to say that right. It's Gamera, isn't it? Gamera is the way it's traditionally pronounced, but at least in America. Whether that's the actual pronunciation in Japan, I can't say in this instance. Um, I was was thinking of going back and editing that, but no, I'll just leave my wrong pronunciation in there so everyone knows it. Yeah, Gamera, right? Like the turtle guy. Yeah. We, We could go back. We could go back to Kaiju and go for Gamera. But I've got a different idea. I've got something that you have some familiarity with that um, I have a lot of familiarity with. So Hideaki Anno co-directed Shin Godzilla, we agree, is the second best Godzilla film. Uh, He was also briefly at Studio Ghibli, uh, making the very kaiju-like sequence in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. If you see, there's a big monster in that movie. He was in charge of that sequence. 
Um, so what I think that we should do next year is do a connection is that it would uh, be a good idea for you and I, and for anyone else out there, if you want to join us, we should look at the entire Studio Ghibli filmography next year because I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one where I, there's a, some quite a few gaps I've been meaning to plug in my viewing of their work. Uh, so it certainly is a perfect excuse to do that in this instance. Uh, in this there, and I've already been sort of stockpiling and putting the films together in the correct chronological order uh, of the ones I own there to be set for this one, and looking at where acquiring uh, the ones that I need to uh, if they're not available already on Netflix. So, Oh, good. Well, that's absolutely terrific, which brings up the point that I wanted to tell everyone out there. Like, yes, um, here we're saying like the Criterion set, the Criterion set and other sets, and like, hey, go to your, if, if you're unsure, again, libraries, they're great. Go to your library. I They might have uh, what you need over there if you want to watch, uh, especially the first Godzilla movie. Uh, Studio Ghibli, everyone, if you want to join us, we're always happy to have someone join our Japanese movie club, uh, Studio Ghibli movies in the United States. I believe almost all of them are on HBO Max in the rest of the world, including Canada. They're on Netflix. The only one is the saddest one. We, you and I were just talking about it today is Grave of the Fireflies. Pretty much everything else, it's on those streaming services. So if you want to join us, there's no big level for entry. It's just, if you got Netflix or HBO Max, you can join along with us. Every other weekend, we're going to be watching a Studio Ghibli film. Yep, absolutely. So uh, we look forward to whoever wants to join in on this. It'll uh, be a delight. And at the very least, uh, you're going to get to see some absolutely sweet and sentimental movies that earn their sentiment. Uh, take that, Spielberg. Um yeah, I got the Yeah, candy. yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, where people can find us, we'll say goodbye. I'm at Ross May Writer yep. on Twitter. What yep. else do I do? That's kind of it. Say hi. I talk about movies, but also I like to say a lot of jokes. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. Uh, I'm at 24 panels on Twitter. As I always note, I'm happy to have a civil conversation and the block button is always a minute away if I need to click that. And of course, you can always uh, also try and email us at our show, but I can't remember what the actual uh, email address ever is because that's usually Andrew's Film podcast at gmail.com. Wow. It is sad that uh, you remember that and I can't. Uh, I'm just guessing. I'll double check. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I, I think pretty sure you're right. But you can also rate and review either film strips or Reitman for the job at wherever you get your local podcasting uh, podcast from. Again, you know, if you give five star reviews or whatever, I guess, ranking scale they cho happen to choose uh, your respective uh, podcasting uh, service of uh, note, you know, that helps other people find these shows, helps spread the word, gain a bigger audience. There allow for world domination in some way, shape, or form down the I line. I don't think there are any bigger podcasts than ours. I I think everyone else lies. You film strips and Reitman for the job are the biggest podcasts that exist. There. Yeah, yeah, that that actually would be amazing if oh, podcasting in general is just one big house of cards that's ready to collapse yes. in on itself. So that's what it is. Yep. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um. So Warner Brothers, you, you might as well invest in us. Uh, if you're at this point in time, I mean, if you're so desperate to spend, you know, tons of money on paying big name actors to do podcasts for you, but uh, but yeah. So uh, with that, Ross. Uh, normally this is all the point on my show where I would talk. 
toss over to Andrew and he'd have something uh, to sort of send our viewers off with. He'd say something snarky. Yeah. That's what he would do, but he was crushed. I th- that That's the running thing here. He always, unfortunately, dies from <laughs> from Yakuza assassins or from monsters. But I think I think I can conjure up his spirit. Let me hold on a second. Remember, everyone, monotony may scare you. Is that how that goes? Uh, not quite. Uh. <laughs> Remember, everyone, adventure may scare you, but monotony will kill you. Much like a giant lizard rampaging through Tokyo, as once described by the great uh, prophet's blue oyster cult. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone, and happy holidays. <laughs>